Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, through chapter 2, verse 3. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for one another, from a pure heart, love one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of of imperishable, through the living and the enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Morning, everyone. My name is also Eric, if I haven't met you, and I am also a pastor here At Trinity, and I also have a lot of books. So I'm going to make my plug. Please help us. If you can just spare 30 minutes or an hour or two. We're starting at three uh, at our office uh, just down the street. So we've been looking at the letter of 1 Peter for the past three weeks. It's a letter about hope and suffering. Peter, he wrote this letter to Christians who were new in their faith. And they all had one thing in common. They were all surprised. They were all pretty shaken at how their faith in Jesus didn't bring an immediate end to all the stuff that was hard in life, the suffering and the struggles of life. And not only that, they were also surprised that their new faith in Jesus actually brought more struggle. It brought more suffering into their lives as they were mistreated, and many of them were marginalized for what they believed and and for how they were living as Christians. So Peter wrote this letter to people who needed hope badly. Peter says to them in this letter, you can have more than just a little bit of hope. He says, "If, if you have your Bible, you can open up Uh, and see this in chapter 1. He says you can have a living hope. There is something that you can't lose. There is something that nothing, no matter how hard, can take from you. You've been born again, he says, into a living hope. Verse 3 of chapter 1. He's saying to be a Christian means like Jesus' resurrection life, you have a whole new life. This living hope, it will last forever. This new life grows stronger and deeper through suffering. And so he develops a number of themes in light of that. He says, this is actually the way that we can experience true joy, deep emotional well-being. We looked at this last week. He says, this is how our character is transformed. He calls that becoming holy. And he says, this is how... We learn to give faithful witness with our lives and with our words. 
to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done in our own lives. So today, in the passage we just heard read, uh, Peter comes back to this idea of new life, of this new birth. And if you could sum up this new life in one thing, one mark, one sign that you have this new life, he says it's love. Love one another constantly. And this is a reason for hope, we'll see. That in all your ups and downs, Peter's saying, in all your trials and all your suffering, in your loss and in your grief, there is something invincible and eternal. There is something glorious and something beautiful that God can grow in you. And even more than that, Peter says that God will grow in you. And he calls it a loving life. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And I want to look at it in, in three different ways as we walk through this text and unpack it. A loving life, how it's impossible to live first. Secondly, how it's impossible not to live. And thirdly, how it's possible that we grow into that kind of life. So first, why is it impossible to live? That somehow, recently, uh, our boys in our home Uh, Most of them have gotten turned on to the Beatles. So there's a little bit of Beatlemania happening. I think it had to do with that movie that recently came out, What If the Beatles Never Existed, that movie. So we've been hearing a lot of the Beatles uh, being played, a lot of their songs uh, in our home. So the song All You Need Is Love has been playing a lot. That's one of the classics. It's a great song. And I was paying attention uh, in light of this sermon to to the lyrics. I was just uh, clued into that. And the, the chorus, of course, is all you need is love. I'm not going to sing it. That's not going to happen. All you need is love. But the pre-chorus is, if you remember, it's easy. It's easy. All you need is love. Is it really, is it really easy to love? Peter says at the end of the day, yes, I agree. With John Lennon or, whoever, or McCartney, whoever wrote that song, all we need is love. He says, above all, later on, chapter 4, verse 8, put on love. Above all things, that's what we need. But love is not easy. In fact, as we'll see here, what he says about love, he says it's actually impossible. The only way you think love is easy is if you've never tried to really love someone or you don't really know what it is. Our, our notion of love is often pretty vague. It's pretty sentimentalized. It's kind of warm and fuzzies and a little bit watered down. What is love? Peter describes the kind of love he's talking about. What is, this, what is this loving life? Let's just look at verse 22 and see how Peter describes it. At first, he says, it's sincere. So that you show Sincere. If you're taking notes, you can just underline that. Sincere. This means it's not hypocritical. That's literally the word here, not, and not hypocritical love. No masks. There's no pretending. It's not, it's not forced. You're not faking it. It's real. It says it's genuine. And then he says it's constant. Love one another constantly. You can underline that. This kind of love that Peter is describing, it doesn't take a day off. It's not lackluster or half-hearted. The word means, this is the same word that was used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was stretched out in prayer. 
This is a stretched out love. That intense. That constant. He calls it brotherly love. You can underline that. You show sincere brotherly love for each other. We hear, I don't know what you think of when you hear brotherly love. We might think of like, okay, this is like bro love and you're hanging out with the bros and it's cool. But in the ancient world, brotherly love was actually the strongest of all bonds. Really even stronger than the bond between a husband and a wife. Brotherly love, Philadelphia. This is love like a family. You don't give up because you cannot give up. That's brotherly love. So it's bound, sincere, it's constant, it's bound. He says it's pure. Twice he says pure in 22. For love to be pure means it's not mixed. Not mixed with any selfishness. It's not mixed with any bit of what I am going to get out of this or what I expect in return for my love. It's purely for the other person's good. That's love. It's not pretending or fake. It's constant, it's bound, and it's pure. And there's no way to wrap all of that and the rest of Scripture's uh, description of love into one definition. It's so rich. It's so huge. But here, I'm going to try to do my best. What is love? And nobody say, baby, don't hurt me. I don't want to hear that right now. What is love? I just had to say that. What is love? If I were to summarize everything Peter says here, he says, love is faithfully giving of ourselves for another's good, even at our own expense. So here's what Peter's saying. This kind of love is what you should expect to find in any gathering of Christians in any church. Christians loving one another like that. This church, these people who are not like you, a church where you didn't choose the people that are in this community, you may not have chosen them, but God chose them for you. You should see in any church people faithfully, constantly, with a bond, purely giving themselves to others' good, even at their own expense. That is a powerful force that can change the world. But is it possible? Well, we need to get a little preview of what's coming in First Peter, because that's not all he says. What's coming is this. He says, this love that is to be experienced and given in the Christian community, in the church, is actually also to be extended out beyond the Christian community, even to its enemies. That's what chapter 2 and 3 and 4 are all about. We're going to be looking at those in the coming weeks. But think about this. What do you do when the political leadership in your country, uh, the structures that are in place are unethical? You're not too happy about them. They are corrupt. Maybe they marginalize or misrepresent Christianity or persecute Christians. What should you do? What should a Christian do? Peter says, do good. Serve and honor. Love. say, well, hold on, that's hard. He goes on. He's going to talk about a marriage. In a marriage, when you're not seeing eye to eye with your spouse, maybe your spouse is not really all that interested in God's will, even if it's temporarily 
or just for a, um, inconsistently, momentary, what should a Christian spouse do? Peter is going to say, with reverence and holiness, do all the more good and serve and love. You say, what? What about my fulfillment? Peter goes on to describe a situation like this. When you're in a job and you're stuck, you have to make a living, but you're mistreated. The culture is toxic. You're burdened. It's difficult to go in every single day. What should a Christian do? Peter says, all the more work for the good of the company you're working for, of your boss that's mistreating you because of your faith. Don't look to advance yourself. Serve and love all the more. How would I summarize that? Peter's saying, faithfully give of yourself to the other's good, even at your expense. When you're attacked, when you're mistreated, when you're wronged, when you're misunderstood, you'll know then if you have a loving life like Jesus's, you can do good. Now let's just step back and consider that for a moment. I know what I feel. I don't know what you're feeling, but it's something like this. That's impossible. Who can do that? I can't do that. Yes, Peter says, that is why in verse 24, he goes on to say, all flesh is like grass. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. And there in Isaiah chapter 40, it's one of the most important chapters in all the Bible and, in, and especially in uh, that book, Isaiah is transitioning. He's moving from Here's all the things that you have done and all the things that you have accomplished to what God is going to do. It's a major transition. And he says, all flesh is like grass. The greatest efforts that we can give just fade like the flower. Peter's saying in order to be prepared to hear what God can do, we first have to be confronted with the truth of what we cannot do, what is impossible for us. That's to love like this. And so we can't just say, and Christianity does not say, here it is. Here is love. Isn't it beautiful? Don't you see how this will transform the world? Just go out and do it. That is not the Christian message. It takes Rather, Peter says, an impossible supernatural act. All our human attempts, all our flesh cannot do it. Our old unloving self has to die and a whole new self has to come to life. Peter says, a whole new you has to be reborn. This kind of love is impossible apart from new birth. Verse 23. New birth, where God's love, God's life gets inside of us and actually becomes a part of us. There's no other way. That's how love is impossible. This kind of love is impossible, Christianity teaches, apart from being born again, a whole new life. But 
Look at verse 23 again. That actually isn't the main point of verse 23. Look at what he says. He says, because you have been born again. He's giving grounds for, he's giving reason why love is possible. But even more than that, if you look closely here, he's giving the reason why for a Christian it is impossible not to love. It is impossible not to live a loving life. He says, because of this, love one another from a pure heart constantly. Not because, because God told you to, do it, but because you have been born again. It's like a, a human baby does not choose to be born. It doesn't choose to be a human. A human baby does not choose its DNA or its gender or its eye color or hair color or anything like that. You know, for me, and I've shared this before, my background, my dad was born in India. My mom has a German background, so I have half Indian, half German blood and DNA. That's my nature. So if I one day say, no, I don't want to be that anymore. I want to be Mexican because my wife is Mexican. Well, it doesn't work that way because I have my nature and she has her nature. And that's what Peter's getting at right here. A baby grows into a human because that is its nature. And Peter is saying when you believe in Jesus and become a Christian, you have a whole new nature, a loving life. And so if you look here closely, he's using this language of actually human reproduction to, to drive this point home. It's a little bit colorful, maybe a little graphic. In verse 23, he says, you've been reconceived. See how he says it? By an imperishable seed, not a normal human perishable seed. What the seed is the living and enduring word of God, the gospel. Here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. So he makes it very clear. Your old birth came from mortal sperm. Your new birth comes from God's living word. Just think, a life conceived by God himself. There's two implications of this. First, it's impossible to be a Christian and not love. Love is the mark. Love is the core test. Love is the acid test of a genuine faith that we are really Christians. Love like this, genuine, constant, bound, and pure is the one thing the whole Bible says is the core test, is the mark of a genuine faith. It's the way we know that we have this life. Peter's probably actually quoting and following the logic of the book of Leviticus. Earlier he said, be holy for I am holy. And now he moves into love and Leviticus. Of all books, if you know anything about Leviticus, a harder book to read, but at the heart of it is the call to love. Love thy neighbor as thyself comes from the book of Leviticus. We can move to the Apostle Paul, to the Apostle James, to the Apostle John, whom we read in our liturgy. We can look at the words of Jesus himself who said, By this, this mark, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is the mark that we have this new life. So, my Christian family, my Christian friends here, 
This means we have a lot, a lot to reflect on. Love is our main task. Love is the main goal. Love is the mark we're always shooting for, the life we are called to live. And so this text causes us to reflect and hopefully also to repent because we often make other things the mark, we often have other goals, we get distracted, and we fall short. So this text cuts in, causes us to look hard and ask hard questions. But there's a second implication here. It's impossible to be a Christian and not love, but it's impossible also to be a Christian and not live this life because of the source of this life, the living and the enduring word of God. The grass withers, the, f- the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God's word, the gospel, is alive, it's invincible, and this invincible life is now a part of your life. So this passage is meant to cut us, but it's also meant to be a great encouragement to us. Peter's saying, God will grow this life in you. It's impossible that he won't. You can't stop it. And you need to hear that. If God says he will, he will. Like a tiny little seed can grow and grow and start breaking through the ground and breaking through the concrete and start disrupting homes and houses and nothing can stop the tiny seed from becoming the mighty oak tree. Such is the power of the Word of God at work in your life. It's impossible not to live a loving life for those who have the very love of God growing in them. A loving life. For a Christian, Peter says, it's impossible not to live this life. Even when we think it's just, all I have is just a tiny seed. But chapter 2, it is possible to have this life, Peter says, and not be growing up into it, which is my third point. We have to grow up into it. Like a newborn baby, he uses the image again in chapter 2, verse 2. We have to grow. Now, if you came here this morning and uh, if you saw maybe a a 14-year-old boy or maybe a a 40-year-old woman or a 70-year-old man or woman, and they were acting like a newborn baby, they were curled up in the pew with the little blankie and just crying, they weren't speaking to you, and they... They they just had their little bottle and pacifier next to them. If you saw that, I don't know what you would say to that person, but you might say, what is going on? Why are you acting like a baby? You're a (laughs) grown-up. Something's wrong. Peter says, the newborn baby has to grow up into this life, so we also That's the life we're growing into. But like a baby, we have a long way to go to become an adult. Because love like this is an impossible task. We all have such a long way to go. But it's possible to grow up into salvation in verses 1 through 3. 
He's using the same idea. He's using the same image of the new birth. Like a baby growing up into something, it's what we're saved into. We are saved from sin. We are saved into a loving life. So love is the measure of Christian growth and spiritual maturity. But first, we need to, to sit in this for a moment because there's something we do. And I want to talk to my Christian friends here again. There's something we do to avoid what seems so impossible, this life of love, if we really know what we're being called to, the impossibility of it all, how we feel like we're just little babies when we should be 70 years old in this life. There's something we do to avoid all that. There's something I do, something I've done ever since I've been a Christian to get around that. And that's this. We look for other ways to measure our Christian growth. We look for other ways to measure our Christian growth and maturity other than love. Now, in the context here, I already mentioned this. Peter's describing what a holy life looks like, verses 15 and 16. We talked about that last week. He's continuing the thought in verse 22. Since you have purified yourself, same word group as holiness. Since you have uh, purified yourself by obedience to the truth, he's actually talking about conversion there. Since you have stepped into this life that is set apart and holy to God, he says, you show sincere brotherly love for each other. From a pure heart, love one another constantly. The point I'm making is this. A holy life and a loving life, it's the same thing. And when I ask people, when I have a chance to, to catch up with people, how are you doing spiritually? What's going on? How's your relationship with God? What I most often hear is people measuring their spiritual growth like this. Talk about how much or how often they pray. How much or how often they read the Bible. How much they're studying the Bible. How much maybe they know or don't know about the Bible. Or they spend time talking about the sins they're committing or the sins they're trying to avoid. And maybe just how well they're doing on their moral checklist. All those things are important. But none of those things are necessarily growing into salvation. Why? Because you can do all those things, every single one of them, and not be growing into a loving life. You can still be a very unloving person. So maybe you've had the thought like this. It would be so easy to be holy. It would be so easy to be spiritual if not for these other people that are a part of my life. What I'm getting at is this. If you pray and honestly open, openly pray this to God, God, I want to grow. I want to grow. God answers this prayer by moving you into relationships with people that are very hard for you to love. Almost as hard as you are to love and I am to love. This passage shows us, though, how it's possible to grow into this loving life. We grow up into this life as we desire and long for the pure milk of the word. He's still going with the baby imagery. For the person who wants to live a loving life, they need the constant nourishment of the word. One commentator said, for the infant... 
For the infant, milk is not a fringe benefit. That's the picture here. The word, the gospel, longing for it, craving it, needing it, just like the baby needs milk. We have a lot of newborns here in our church family. And something that I'm sure none of the mothers and fathers are saying to their little infants is, I just fed you four hours ago. Why are you so hungry? Can't you wait until tomorrow? I'm so tired. Why don't we just do this tomorrow? That's a good meal. I just gave it to you. Just wait. We don't do that. Of course not, because the infant needs to grow. It's longing and it's craving and it's desiring the milk. It has to have it. It must have it and it will let you know. It will die without milk. That's the picture of how much we need to drink and crave and constantly take in and soak in and savor the word, the gospel. That's how we grow into love. So, am I just saying, okay, we went through all that, just read the Bible. Just read the Bible. And you will have a loving life. No. <laughs> I'm not saying that. And some of you are like, okay, I've tried that. It didn't work. You have to taste something. You have to taste something in the Word. If you don't taste it, you will not grow. What is it? What is it that's so tasty in the Word? What is it that we're desiring and longing and craving? Is it to be right? To have the right ideas and doctrine? No, that's not what Peter's saying. Is it to be good? To be moral? Is that what we should crave? No, that's not what Peter says. Is it to be loving? To have that loving life? No, that's actually not what Peter says. That's better, but that's not it. He says this, verse 3, to taste and see that the Lord is good. He says, you have to taste the Lord. You have to taste Him in the Word. There's a saying we use, you are what you eat, right? Because what we take into our bodies, it actually, we take it in, we digest it, it becomes us. It is our life. To live a loving life, we must taste Jesus so we become like him. But how do we know that we are tasting him? What does it taste like? There are two flavors. They're always present when we are tasting Jesus. They're both here in the text. The first is we taste, when we taste, that he is good, that he is loving and pure and holy, that his love is genuine, constant, bound and pure. We always start to taste our badness, how our love is not like that compared to, to his love. So when we taste his goodness, our badness is revealed. Badness, that's, that's too general a term. That's where verses, uh, verse 1 comes in in chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Oh, Peter says, Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Now look at that verse. If you could just read that verse, 2-1, and just 
slide on by and go, okay, I think I'm good. None of that applies to me. Moving on. Then you're not tasting. You're not tasting him. Malice is wishing others ill. Hypocrisy, pretending to be what we are not. Deceit, twisting, fudging the truth to make ourselves look good. Not telling the truth in love to someone who needs to hear it. Envy, wanting what others have. Slander, talking about other people in a way that puts them in a negative light. When we taste his goodness, when we taste his love, we start to see ourselves in verse 1. We start to see the malice, the hypocrisy, the envy. We start to see the slander. The ways that we fail to love are revealed and we taste it. We don't like that taste, but we're tasting his goodness. So how do we know that we are tasting the Lord? We know we are tasting the goodness of the Lord when we realize how it is infinitely impossible for him to love us than it is for us to love the hardest people in our lives. That's how we know we're tasting that he is so good, that his love is so pure and so holy, he reveals the ways that we so fall short. When we taste his goodness, our lack of love is revealed, but that is not the main course. That's not the main taste. That's not the taste that lingers and causes us to come back for more. The gospel is this. Though we are more unloving, and more unlovely than we will ever really see or know. There's nothing we can do to make God love us less. There's nothing we can do to make him love us more because Jesus faithfully gave himself for us, for our good, at great expense. That's the gospel. And there is no other taste like that. We are overwhelmed at the love of God, how he has done the impossible, loving even us. There's nothing as good as tasting that. If I could try to drive home that taste by telling a few stories here to illustrate this point. Two stories about a king. First story, the king was uh, coming back to his city, his castle, he came in all the pomp and the celebration and all the, the horns were blowing. He was coming into the city and there was a peasant who was dirty. His clothes were all ripped up. And he sees coming from the side an attacker coming to kill the king. When the peasant sees what's happening, he jumps in front of the king and takes the sword on behalf of the king. We would say, that is a, a good man. He gave his life for the king and for his country. And we would say, he, he gave the ultimate sacrifice. He did his duty. Now, what if the story was this? The king was riding into his city, all the pomp and circumstance. This was his time of glory. He saw an attacker coming out at, this, at a dirty and poor peasant sitting there in the corner in the dark. 
And so the king jumps off his horse to stop the attack. He kills the attacker, but he suffers a mortal blow in the effort. And so the king gave his life for someone who didn't deserve it. It wasn't his duty. It wasn't his duty to save the peasant. How could we explain it any other way than it was love? In the letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 5, he says, um, someone may give his life for a good man or a righteous man. That might happen. We could imagine that happening. But he says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, beggars, peasants, just so soiled and dirty with our lack of love, while we were yet Sinners, God demonstrates his own love towards us in this. Christ died for us. The book of Hebrews says, Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone. Why? Why would the king taste death for us? So that we might taste his goodness and being overwhelmed by the way that we are loved by him, that we would be able to love others. When we taste God's love for us at our worst, it's so good, and we say, if God can love me like this, I can love in ways I never thought possible. Just a few final thoughts on how this love grows practically. For those of you who are burdened right now with how impossible it seems to love maybe somebody in your life, I want you to be encouraged. Love grows slow. Peter says it's like a seed and a baby. It grows slow and over time. When Jesus talked about how the word, the gospel works, he said it's like a seed, his favorite imagery to describe the power of how the how the gospel works like a seed, slowly and over time. It happens gradually. So remember that. For those of you who are in, right now burdened in what seems like impossible situations, you're struggling, you can barely think about loving others because you're struggling so much yourself. Let me encourage you with this. Love grows in suffering and in humanly Impossible situations. One scholar said, faith is purified, love is intensified, grace is tasted as we are tested. Love grows in suffering. But we have to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, let me just close with this. If I had a piece of cheesecake, I don't know what your favorite dessert is. Mine is cheesecake. Or if I had an In-N-Out hamburger right here, and I just went on and on and said, look at this cheesecake. Look at it. It's so sweet. It's got the perfect mixture of creaminess and tanginess. It has the fruit topping on top. Perfect crust right here. Do you see that? You see this, this cheesecake? You imagine it with me here. Can you see that? Can you see that? 
Well, you would say, yeah, I can see it, but I want to taste it. And that's what Peter is saying. To build a loving life, this sermon isn't enough. Thinking about it isn't enough. Just seeing it isn't enough. You have to grab a hold of it, take it in, and taste it. Taste it for yourself. Constantly rehearse, drink in the story, taste the story of God's love for you. Taste and see the Lord is good. That's how we grow into a loving life. Let's pray. God of love, you are the God who is love. It is who you are. It is who you've always been. It is who you'll always be. The one who pours himself out, the one who gives himself for the good of another, even at great expense to yourself. I pray this morning that as we face the daunting call and task of love, that you would help us not to see just words on a page or hear words with our ears, but in our souls to taste where we need to taste our failures to love in light of your perfect and good love. Help us taste it and move us further into tasting how good it is that we, how impossible it is that we, even we, are loved by you in your son Jesus. May that take hold. May we taste it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.